All right, good afternoon. Welcome, welcome, welcome to your guest with us. My name is Al. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, it's an honor to have you. It's an exciting day today. We are celebrating life change through baptism. That'll happen at the end of service. And so, uh, and then afterwards, we're going to throw a feast, throw a party, uh, just like heaven will be, uh, rejoicing and feasting forever. Some of you have come here today. You know Jesus, you love Jesus, uh, and you're here to worship him. Some of you uh, have questions. Some of you are not, or, or, or maybe uh, seeking, or, or maybe uh, just uh, skeptical a little bit. And so, so we just are glad everyone is here, and we're glad uh, that, that you've decided to, to be here. We believe God wants to speak to each and every one of us, and so uh, it's an honor to bring God's Word today. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Um, we're going to talk about the King of Kings. That's the title of our sermon series, King of Kings. Today's sermon title is Obey Your King. We're looking at the reality that Jesus is King, whether we worship Him or recognize it or not. That's just, some of you reject that idea, and we're glad you're here. But today, I want you to see through the, the scriptures that this is not a, a, a subject to be, we can debate it, but at the end of the day, Jesus has the final word. Um, and so, you know, every four years in our country, uh, half the, or some people go, not my president. Both sides of the aisle, both sides of the aisle, true statement. It's, it happens all the time. And then the other side goes, you're, it is your president. You live in the country. That's how it is with Jesus. Like, he is the king. We talked about last week that he was born king. And even in the pagan Roman world, they heard that he was born king, so they sought to kill him. Herod hated him. He, he was a baby and was afraid of the, he just heard the news that there was a, a, a child who was born king. Herod was made king, but Jesus was born king. And that sent shockwaves to the entire uh, uh, Roman Empire. And, and it eventually ended with Jesus giving his life in our place for our sins. And so before we get to that, that's where we're headed. Uh, we're going to talk about the, this man, John the Baptist. So Matthew chapter 3, starting from 1 through 3, we've looked at John the Baptist's parents. We saw his, his mother. Uh, we saw John the Baptist is the cousin of King Jesus. He's the cousin of Jesus. So we looked at Mary, the angel speaking to Mary about uh, her bearing Jesus. Uh, then we, we saw Elizabeth, uh, who is uh, Mary's uh, uh, cousin, uh, or, uh, or sorry, sister, and Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, would be born. They, both of these men have grown up. Uh, and now we're looking at their lives and their ministries. They're going to preach something very, very, very similar. That's why we're looking at him. And so in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The job of John the Baptist was to prepare the way for his cousin, King Jesus. To come. And he's telling us that he, there's a king and he's coming. He is a king and he's coming. And, and, and he wants God's people to be prepared for that coming. And so, verse 3, it says, this he's, he, uh, this, for, it, for this he was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. 700 years before John the Baptist comes on the scene, 700 years before, it is prophesied and foretold that he would be coming. It would be coming not only John the Baptist, but Jesus. 700 years prior, Isaiah speaks to both John the Baptist coming and Jesus before they're even born, before any, anyone who is alive at that time would even be alive when they, they came. The scriptures foretold through the prophet that, behold, there's one coming out of the wilderness. He's going to be crying and he's going to be uh, preaching. He's going to be preparing the way for the Lord. Uh, make, pay, make straight your paths. Get ready. The king is coming. That was John the Baptist's message. 
Jesus and John, cousins, uh, both of their moms conceived uh, by the power of God. Uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, was barren. Jesus' mom, Mary, a virgin. Both took miraculous uh, God help. And we talked about that last week. And so this mission that John the Baptist has is to prepare God's people for the coming king. To prepare God's people for the coming king. And he preaches repentance. It's a word that we're going to get into today, uh, but, but oftentimes gets misunderstood. Uh, simply put, the word repentance means turn around. Turn around. You're going one way, turn around. The question is, what are you turning back to? It's like a father uh, uh, telling their child as they're running into the road, hey, don't run into the road, turn around, come back to me. This is, John the Baptist is telling God's people, hey, turn around, come back to your God. The king is coming. He is coming. So this is the mission of John the Baptist. Additionally, our mission is, is similar now. Jesus has come the first time, and he is coming again the second time. Christmas season, we remember his first coming, but we also remember Jesus' what well, we anticipate his second coming. The king is coming again. And this time, he's not going to lay down his life for his people, but he's going to uh, put to death all evil once and for all. And, he's, and he's, gonna, he's creating right now a new heavens and new earth for his people to reign with him eternally. And he's coming back to get the family, to bring us into to, to, to his new heaven, the new earth. And he wants all, anyone who will believe in him to come. So our message is like John the Baptist, hey, the king is coming back. He's coming back. Make ready, get ready. And that comes through repentance. Turn around, come back to Jesus. Some of you, you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you've been through a season. Maybe you, you've, you've, you've hit, you hit the, the exit ramp. You, you, you got off at the last stop and it's time for you to get back on the highway. Jesus is calling you back through repentance. And so how, do, how does this look? In, verse, in chapter 4, continuing in Matthew, he says, The light of the world has come. The light of the world has come. When he, heard, uh, when, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. So Jesus, we're fast-forwarding a little bit. Uh, we're fast-forwarding to, to when John the Baptist is now, he's been preaching, and now he's arrested. He's arrested for preaching. He's arrested for calling out Herod, uh, who stole his, his, his brother's wife. And Herod's wife said, you know what, I don't like that, you know, that John the Baptist, that religious guy, said that about me. Let's take his head off. They cut his head off. That's what they did. That's what they did. And so this is about to happen. And so when Jesus heard this, he withdrew to Galilee. But here's why. Verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the, the way by the sea, Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, upon them light has dawned. Another prophecy. Another prophecy. There's something, uh, a total of 8,000 prophecies from the scriptures that have been already fulfilled in our lifetime, up to this point in human history. The Bible is repeatedly foretelling and has foretold what would happen. And this is one of the ways we know that it's true. 8,000 times God has been right. Historically. We, we have, and there's more manuscripts of the New Testament than there are of any other book in the history of the world. Which means, for, for historicity's sake, it's the most reliable book in the entire world. 
And it's been proven to be true again and again and again. So here, the reason why after he hears about John's arrest is not just simply to seek safety, though it is, but it is in in seeking safety is the fulfillment of a prophecy. Another 700 years prior, Jesus is fulfilling another prophecy. In this, he says that, that the people are dwelling in darkness. This is what Isaiah says, that the people dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, upon them light has dawned. The people dwelling in darkness, what this is, is God's people uh, willfully walking in darkness. That's this what it is, dwelling in darkness, meaning they, they've, they've pitched their tent, they, they've, they've moved their camp, they, they've decided that they're going to uh, rebel against God. It's part of the reason why John the Baptist shows up and heralds repentance come back to Jesus is because they are, they, are, they are willfully rebelling against the God of the Bible, the God they know and love. They're willfully doing so. And there, it says that they're dwelling in darkness, meaning that, that the people in the, that, they, they, that they're around are not calling them to repentance but are complicit in the darkness as well. And so it says that they're from the, the, the Galilee of the Gentiles. These are not Jew- There's also folks there that are not, uh, never were Jewish. They're, they're, they're just like you and I. Most of us are not, did not grow up Jewish or not Jewish background, but you are a Gentile. You, you were, and then you got saved. And so they're dwell- these are people who are, who are not worshiping the God of the Bible. They're in willful rebellion. They're in willful sin. And it, it says that they're avoiding the light. They're, they're living in the, the shadow of death. So as, as, a, as a tree casts shade from the sun, so the people have not run to the light, to the sun, to the God of the Bible, but have, have decided to hunker down in the shade, kind of like Adam and Eve when they sinned against God. What do they do? They hid. They hid. It's what we do. When we're aware of our sin, we feel shame. We feel guilt. We feel, we feel uh, uh, just belittled. We feel, some may say you just feel disgusting. You feel, you feel all these negative feelings. What do you want to do? You want to hide in shame. Hide in shame. Have you been there where you just feel so full of shame or you just want to hide? You feel full of guilt that you just don't want to be around people? Literally, Adam and Eve, when, when they, they first sinned and rebelled against God, what did they do? They went and hid. They went and hid from God. Here's the reality. You can't hide from God. God is pursuing you. And then, this is what it says. The the light shined on them. Right? Who did the light shine on? It shined on those who were dwelling in the region of the shadow of death. On them, the light has shone. What does this show us? That, That God is not afraid to chase after those who've rebelled against him. There's no sin that you've committed that the, that you can outsend the mercy and grace of the God of the Bible. There's more mercy and grace in Jesus than sin in you. And so what, it, what the prophet is telling us, and he's foretelling it uh, 700 years before it happens, and so Jesus is fulfilling it here in this very scripture. He's saying, I'm coming to the rescue. You've, you, you, you think that, that hiding and shame is going to give you peace, but I've come to give you life, to give you new life, to give you true peace. You think that you can atone for your sins, that you can make up for what you've done, but I'm coming to rescue you. It's amazing here. It's not, most, some will think that if, if you're dwelling in darkness, rebelling against God, and, and uh, you, you dis, even maybe to the point of hatred towards God, that he would be coming, looking after you to scold you. To, to, to condemn you. All we see is Jesus is coming to shine light. Healing, 
hope, redemption, a future on a people who were willfully rebelling against the God of the Bible. He's coming to rescue. He's coming to save. He's coming to redeem. And so the, this prophecy is, is, is not just something that, uh, that, that, that is, we see being fulfilled, but, but it's not just empty words. It's, it's actually happening. God, Jesus is showing up to offer to these people hope and life. And so Jesus is the great light that has come to restore what mankind broke. The light is shining on the people. God is pursuing sinners. This is marvelous. This is amazing. This is undeserved. There is hope for all mankind to the person and work of Jesus. Man, that's, that's the, the, the great joy of Christmas. It's not just that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin. Well, that's awesome and great, but why? This, Jesus lived a sinless life in our place for our sins. He was born king. Christmas is a point in history that, that literally changes everything. Even world history is, is divided. Literally, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. The whole world understands that the coming of the king mattered, and it, and it changed things tremendously. So Jesus has come. He's come to rescue. The great, this is what it means. The great light has shone on, on the people. Have you, do you, have you ever been in a season of darkness? Hardship. Life is hard. It's full of pain. It's full of hardness. It's full, it's, it's full of darkness. It's full of confusion. Sometimes it feels like we, we just can't escape maybe the, the shadow of darkness in, in our life. And sometimes Christmas can heighten that. The season can heighten that. You just feel the, the wave of discouragement, despair, and darkness. And you're going, is there any hope? Jesus is the hope for all humanity. So what is the first thing that Jesus does? Jesus is the hope that saves us from our sin. And here's the reality. If Jesus can save you from your sin, he can help you with all your problems. See, if, if, if he can help, if he can deal with the eternal consequence and punishment of sinners, past sin, present sin, future sin, all humans, if he can deal with that problem, he can deal with any problem, financial problem. Emotional problem, spiritual problem, uh, relational problems. What are the hardships you're going through? What makes your season dark? What, what, what do you feel that you are hopeless in despair? Like may, perhaps you need the light of God to shine upon. If Jesus can handle your sin problem, he can enter and give you hope for all, the, all your problems. See, some of us don't like the way Jesus handles our sin problems. So you might not like the way he handles all your problems. But here's the reality. He can, he, he, he's sufficient for them all. But in how, how, what is the way forward? What does he say? Verse 17, he continues. Jesus, here we go. Uh, repentance in the kingdom. That's the next two things. From that time. So the light has dawned. The very next verse says, From that time Jesus began say, to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preaching the same message John the Baptist preached. Except for John the Baptist was preparing the way for God's people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom. The king is here. See, John isn't, isn't preaching a message that Jesus isn't preaching. The Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, were preaching. Malachi preaching. All these, those who had gone before Jesus 700, 400 years prior were preaching, preparing God's people to, for, 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 for salvation. And the king has come. 
He doesn't change his script. He says the same thing they've been saying year after year, generation after generation, century after century. Repent. He's saying the kingdom is here. It's at hand. And so this is what the dawning light looks like. It shines into darkness. And it reveals what's hiding out in the darkness. Have you ever been looking for something and you can't find it and it's under your couch and you pull out the flashlight? What does the light do? It reveals what's there. Have you ever been? I don't know. Don't look under my couch. Sometimes we're afraid of what we've seen. You've ever been there? You looked under your couch? You're like, I'm not sure that I wanted that revealed. That's why it's under the couch. We don't lift it up. We don't move it because, you know, now we've got to deal with it. And so the light has shined into the darkness, the dark crevices. Now we've got to deal with it. The pretzel crumbs, the, all those other things that are down there, toys that you've... Then you find money. You're like, wow, a dollar bill. Where did that go? Could have used that. What is it that, that, that you, you, has been exposed by the light that you're just... You don't, man, I don't want it to be exposed. I actually don't want the light of Christ to shine on my life. Because if it does, then it's going to reveal things that maybe I don't want to deal with. Or maybe things that I know that are there. So this is what Jesus does. He shines the light into the dark crevices of our heart, the life, the world, and he, and he reveals what's there. But he doesn't do it to reveal what's there out of shame. You know, if you came to my house and you looked under my, my couch, you might do it to my shame. You go, hey, look, he said that. I'm going to go look next time and just, you know, mock him for the pretzel crumbs. I just, or popcorn, who knows? We have a dog now, so 50% of that is, doesn't make it under the couch. So if that's, if you're like, but, but what, do we, what do we often do? Our society and culture, we want to expose people. We want to shine the light to, to mock, ridicule, and shame people, right? When we do exposure stories, it's to shame someone publicly, right? With Jesus, he shines the light, he exposes it, but then he wants to help us. He wants to deal with it. He wants to actually eradicate the mess, to deal with the mess. He says, let me expose it and let me come in and clean up the house. Let me rearrange uh, the things that are, that are not right. Let me, let me fix what is broken. But in order for, it to, for what's broken to be fixed, you've got to admit that it's broken. And so the light of Christ has shined. It's shining and it's shining on the darkness. And what that means is there, there must be Repentance. This is the equivalent to if I want, if, I, if light is shine under my couch, I'm going to keep with that analogy, we've got we to gotta vacuum it up. We've got to move some things around. We've got to clean it up. We're just covering up the mess. How many of your lives, that's how you feel, you're just covering up the mess you've made? And you're like, I don't know how to deal with my life. I don't know how to uh, fix my life. If I can just cover it up through work, through going to church, through doing some good things, not letting people in my life, not letting people get, get beyond the surface. If I can just do that, I can just make it through this season, through the next season. God wants to expose the darkness. He wants to reveal what's there, and then he wants to come in and help clean and fix. And so what that might mean is repentance, turning from what, what, has, what, what is keeping you from God, return, or turning back to Christ from your rebellion against him. This is what the dawning of the light looks like. The king has come, and he says, I want you in my kingdom. And he says, I will pay for you to be in the kingdom with my life. 
Jesus willfully gives his life for you, stands in your place for your sins. He is the one lifted up on the cross. He is the one stretched out. He is the one exposed. He is the one brutally beaten. He is the one mocked. He is the one ridiculed. He is the one open to shame so that you no longer would be. Through faith and repentance and trust in Jesus, what Jesus has done is he's what the theologians call the great exchange. He took your place for your sins so that he could give you, through faith, his righteousness, his perfection, his sinlessness. And therefore, when he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying turn from false worshiping anything other than me and and come and worship me. Repentance is first for salvation, but continually the Christian life is one of repentance. We talk about this often. This is the first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed on the church door, was that the Christian life is one of repentance. And so, what is repentance? It's important for us that it is a turning around. It is a coming back to Jesus. But our culture has made counterfeits. And so sometimes we buy into the counterfeit and we buy into the lie and it keeps us from true repentance. And so the the counterfeits of repentance, I'll be quick through these, there's seven. Uh, Religious repentance. Religious repentance is a counterfeit. What this is, is it says, I see your sin, I don't see my own sin. I confess your sin, but I don't confess my sin. It's, it's where I, I'm, I'm unhappy with your sin and the sins of those types of people, but I'm not really troubled by my own. You know, like those type of people, they're really, really bad. And here's all, and, and, and to some degree, you may be actually identifying a sin that ought to be repented of. But if you are not one who is, a, 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 is, one who is repentant yourself, and you're one, hey, just, they got a problem, I don't. That's religious repentance. That's false repentance. This is, these are the same people who killed Jesus. That's the type of repentance they had. Those guys are bad. We're good. That's all, there's only bad guys until Jesus steps in. And he makes, that's what he does. And so the first counterfeit is religious repentance, where I'm good, you're not, you need to change, I don't need that change. Second is pagan repentance. This is prevalent in our culture now. This is, very, this is an external apology without inward change. This is like I've, I've sinned culturally. I've said something that the media doesn't like. I've said something that other people don't like. And maybe you have really offended someone and hurt someone. But the only thing they want you to do is just publicly proclaim it. They don't care that you change. It's just I just got to outwardly look good. If I do all the right things, if I say all the right things, I, my PR campaign does the right things, I, I, I attend these certain uh, courses of action, and I do all these things, everyone will see, you know what, that guy, that girl, you know, they've repented. They've, they've changed when inwardly they haven't. This is an external apology with no inward change. It's I've sinned, so I confess publicly and I appeal to the cultural priests and priestesses of our day, whoever they are, whoever the, the, the power, those who have power, those who, uh, who, who want us to do certain steps of action. We appeal to them, but ultimately there's no restoration, no heart change. You only look good publicly. Pagan repentance. It's not true repentance. Number three, worldly sorrow. This is just I'm sorry I got caught. I'm only sorry I got caught. I wouldn't be sorry unless I got caught. It's not repentance. 
So the apology that it's only sorry because, or, or maybe you're, you're not just sorry because you got caught. You're just sorry because, man, it's just negative side effects. I'm sorry. This is worldly sorrow. It's just no real heart change. You see this? None of these have heart change. It's just external uh, counterfeits. Number four, mere confession. This is just confessing. No, you're right. I did it. I, was, I, I did it. I was wrong. But never apologizing. Right? Have you ever seen that? I was wrong, but I'm not sorry. Like, you're right. I'm guilty. But I'm not sorry. There, there, the, there, this is a, another counterfeit, right? We think that just by confessing, but never apologizing, never apologizing or never changing, that somehow this, this will suffice. Number five, blame shifting. Ever done this one? Where uh, you just, it's, some, it's someone else's fault. I did this, you're right, I did that thing, and it was wrong. But I only did it because you made me do it. I only did it because you said that one thing. Or I only did that because, you know, you're an idiot. Like, that's, that's why I did it. And you're like, that's, that's, the, have you ever been on the other end of that? You're like, well, it seems like you still did something wrong. Blame shifting. This is actually what Adam and Eve did. Eve, uh, Adam sinned as well with Eve, and he blames his wife. He goes, ah, you know, God, thanks for telling me. You're right, we did, we did disobey you, but... The woman made me do it. His words, not mine. Uh, the woman made me do it. Never changing, just blame shifting, someone else's fault. Number six, this, the sixth counterfeit is, uh, well, at least I'm not as bad as other people. This is minimizing it. At least I'm not Hitler or someone worse or something where at least I'm not that bad. So the Pharisees did. At least I'm not, you know, like the G- Gentiles over there. At least I'm not as bad as those guys. Minimizing your sin. Number seven, excuse making. By, you know, you know, my Enneagram number. That's why I do all the things I do. That's why I do it. You know, Myers-Briggs, they told me. I can't, I'm just a jerk. And that's just who I am. You know, God made me that way. You know, my upbringing, you know what? My upbringing, my situation, you're always a victim. This is, this is the excuse making. I have an excuse for why I am the way I am, and I'm justified in it. See, all these are counterfeits. They look like things that, that are leading to change, but they're empty. And we know them to be empty, and we see them, and we recognize them in culture. And so you hear repentance, and you're like, what does that mean? What does it look like? What is true repentance? What is Christian repentance? It's seven things as well. Number one, it's conviction of sin. It's actually God, God the Holy Spirit showing up in, in convicting the heart at the heart level that, that you sinned, you, you were wrong, that God is right and you're wrong. There's a, there, there's a conviction from the heart. We see when the church began in Acts, when they preached, they were cut to the heart. From the, from the, inward, from, from the inward being and at the spiritual level, the soul level, you're just like, no, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. And God, I see that I'm wrong. And we see that we, throughout the scriptures, when people come into the presence of God, they become very aware of that. When Isaiah, who, all, who prophesied all of this that we've spoken about, and when he came into the presence of God, he became undone. He started confessing his sin. He started confessing the fact that he lived among other people in their sin, in their darkness. He, he, he was a very aware from the heart level that he was guilty. It's hard for our world to do that. No one wants to admit they were wrong. True repentance first, the first step is understanding that you were wrong, that you're guilty, that you've rebelled against God. There's a conviction at the heart level. That's where it starts. And, and God, the Holy Spirit, convicts the heart. 
Now, see, conviction is different than, than guilt and shame. See, as soon as you get, you're convicted of sin, the enemy shows up and wants to shame you. He wants to, we're told throughout Revelation that the, the, that the church continued to move forward with power because they were overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of, of, his, of, of Christ's testimony because they were being accused night and day by the serpent Satan. There's accusations that, that, that come from when, when we sin and rebel against God, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, we're aware of our sin, then the enemy shows up and wants to make you feel guilty, makes you, make you feel shame, make you feel dirty, make you feel, feel, feel unclean. Which leads us to true repentance moves from conviction to confession. It confesses to God that you've sinned. I'm guilty. I admit it. Not only do I feel it, but I, I'm aware of it. I, 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 I admit it. See, if you, because of the person and work of Jesus, because Jesus really died in your place for your past sin, your present sin, and your future, your future sin, confessing sin should be quite natural. Why don't we want to confess sin? Well, I don't want people to know. I don't want God. He knows. He has the scars on his hands to prove it. He already got beat, punished, executed, murdered in your place for your sins. So he's already aware of it. He's like, I dealt with that one already. I've already forgiven that one. Oh, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And not just yours, everyone's. I've dealt with sin. When Jesus breathed his last on the cross, he said, it is finished. The atonement for sin has been finished. The victory has been won through the resurrection. Now we place our faith in the king. And so when we're convicted of sin, we just confess it. We're, we're, God, I've sinned. See, what, we, what, what, you, what you, you'll end up doing is if you don't confess your sin regularly to God, when you become aware of it, you just pile it up when the closet stored away. Or you shove it under the rug and eventually you trip. Because all of it's just piling. Things that have been forgiven, you're holding on to. Maybe you're, you're letting them define you. You're, you're, you're letting them def, de, de, uh, cause you to chart your course. Jesus has forgiven you. You confess your sin. And now the enemy has no stronghold over you. Because you're declaring that Jesus has won. He's atoned for your sin. There's no need for uh, shame and guilt. Because Jesus has dealt with my sin. And what is the, then it leads to conviction of sin, confession of sin, but then it leads to turning from sin. This is literally the definition of repentance. It's turning. So if, if God, the Holy Spirit, really convicted you of sin, you've really confessed your sin, and then you turn from your sin. Like I'm headed back that way. I was going this way. I'm going back that way. Headed back to the, the Father. I'm, or I'm reading God's word. I'm going, I've got to realign myself with God's word, will, and ways. Not to earn God's love, but because I already have his love. Not to earn my way into the kingdom, but because I'm already in the kingdom. See, the rules of God are not to earn your, your right standing with God. Faith and repentance in Jesus earns your right standing already because Jesus has earned it on your behalf. Repentance is saying, I'm staying on the family property. Repentance is saying, I'm going to stay in the kingdom. The kingdom's big and I get to run around and do, be a part of the kingdom. But, you know, there's walls and I don't want to go off out there because I've been told it's forbidden. That's not God's word, will, and ways to find the walls for our safety, for our protection, for our flourishing, for the sake of the kingdom. And we want anyone and everyone to join us to come into the kingdom. So when we, 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 when we are aware of our sin, we, we realize that we've, we we're rebelling against God, we're convicted, we, we confess it, and then we turn from it. Well, additionally, we turn from it, and number four, we treasure Christ. We love Jesus more than we love our sin. Sin's enjoyable. Jesus is more enjoyable. 
the pleasures we're told in the, by the psalmist in Psalm 16:11 that in the presence of Jesus are pleasures forevermore. There's no pleasure that can be offered outside of Christ that, that, is, that is of any eternal value. And, and, and all pleasure outside of Christ will, will have an end. So sin is, is, is temporary. It feels good for the moment. Even hiding, dwelling uh, in your shame feels like you're protecting yourself. It's not. So we, we turn from our sin and we treasure Christ. We, we, we believe that there's more mercy in Jesus and grace in Jesus than sin in us. We're, we're like, I don't need to feel guilty. I don't need to feel shame. Jesus has won the victory. This is all part of repentance. True repentance treasures Christ. It turns from its sin. It's convicted of its sin. It confesses its sin. It turns to its sin. turns from its sin and it trusts Jesus. It trusts Jesus. And therefore, number five, it fights its sin. Now there's, the, there's a disdain for sin. If Jesus died for that sin, that sin must die. Like I don't, the, the sin that killed my Savior, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. I want to fight it. I don't want to just wound it. I want to kill it. This is what we're told in, in Romans 8, 13, that if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we'll have life, we'll live. It's not just feeling bad, but it's saying, it's not just saying sorry that we do. It's saying, I'm not, it's not just saying I'm going to try harder. It's when I want to kill the sin. I want to remove it from my life. Because this sin killed Jesus, I don't have anything to do with it anymore. I don't have anything to do with it. I love my Savior. I treasure my Savior. So this, number one through five, is true repentance. True repentance. Six and seven happen when you've sinned against someone else. So this is what true repentance looks like when you've sinned against someone else. Number six, restitution uh, because of sin. And this is, because it's like, if I stole something, I want to pay it back. If you come aware of your sin, if you've done wrong, part of repentance would be, this is what happens with Zacchaeus. He's aware of his, he's defrauded people. He meets Jesus, he gets saved, and what does he do? He goes and pays it back. He pays more. He, does go, he goes above and beyond. The point is, if you've, if you've harmed someone, and, and, and you, I need to play my part in the healing if I can. It's me and the person I've harmed, not an ethereal collective. But if I've sinned against someone, and I've wounded them, or I've sinned against them, I've become aware of it. It's my job to seek restitution between us. And because of the race of God, that there's, there's the opportunity for that. A great example is, is Zacchaeus. If you stole how, and you, you become aware of your sin, you can confess, you're convicted of your sin, you confess your sin, you turn from your sin, you treasure Jesus, you remember the gospel, you remember you're forgiven, you remember that there's more mercy and grace in Jesus than sin in you, you delight in Christ, and, you, and you're like, I want to fight sin, I want to stop stealing, so I'm going to stop stealing. And then what about the people I've stolen from? Well, how can I go repay them? It's part of the process if you sin against someone. Number seven, Reconciliation. Jesus takes away sin, enabling reconciliation to happen. What we have been, the gospel tells us that we, though we were sinners in in rebellion against God, he's reconciled us back. We're in right relationship with God. So it takes two people for reconciliation to happen. Meaning that the the offended party, so if you've offended somebody and you're coming to to seek reconciliation, if they don't forgive you, there is no reconciliation. Sometimes when you've sinned against someone, you, 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 you've, you're coming to them, you're seeking restitution, and you, you're seeking forgiveness, and they won't give forgiveness, and that's all you can do. That's all you can do. But there is no reconciliation. And sometimes this is really hard. Or maybe you have forgiven the party, and, the, and, the, and someone has offended you, and you've forgiven them, but they won't come repent. They won't apologize. They, they're, you know, maybe they're not even aware of it. So there's just this brokenness in that relationship. It takes two people 
to reconcile. The offended party has to be willing to forgive. Forgive themselves, forgive others. This is what true repentance looks like. This is Christian repentance. And all of life is one of repentance. So you repent and you turn from your sin. You turn from worshiping anything other than Jesus to worshiping Jesus. And then anytime you go outside the bounds of the kingdom and you're aware of it, by, by God's word revealing it, God, I'm wrong. I confess it. Turn from it. Treasure Christ. This is the path back. Back home. Back. This is the path of the kingdom. See, this leads to life. True repentance leads to life. The counterfeits do not. They do not. There's no hope in the counterfeit. It's a counterfeit currency. Looks good on the outside, but can't get you very far. So, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Jesus is king. The light of the world has come. He came preaching repentance. He wants us to join the family. And so our response is that we are to obey the king. Obey your king. And so I want you to see this is this might feel hard if you, when you, if you think about Jesus and his kingdom and you compare it to, to, to modern kingdoms or, or, or governments or ruling classes across the world. You're like, man, those guys are all, I don't want any of those to be king. See, Jesus is the king that left the heavenlies, came to earth to rescue you, to save you, to redeem you, to pay the penalty for your sin, to give you his life. He's trustworthy king. So in light of that, we're told this in, in Philippians 2, 9 through, t- through 10. God has exalted him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name of, above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. All humanity should bow in worship and obey the king. What are we obeying? We're obeying his message. Repent. Turn back to him. Come to him. Receive forgiveness. Receive new life. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Receive hope, redemption. Receive adoption into the family, the king's kids. That's what we're to obey. And he says that everyone, who's, who, anyone living, breathing on earth, and anyone who's gone and, and passed from us should bow. At, just at the name of Jesus demands obedience, repentance, and worship, and bowing, and submission, and humility, and worship of Christ the King. Just his name is that powerful. He's not negotiating here. He's saying this is the fact. Some will. And so my hope is that by faith, you will, you'll see that Jesus is compelling enough that you should worship him. By faith now. For there's coming a time where, where when he returns, this passage is speaking to when he returns also, that every knee will bow. So right now we have the opportunity to bow our knee and worship King Jesus through faith. Through faith. And everyone should bow their knee to him. Not just because he is king, because he is king. Additionally, we have proof that he is a trustworthy king. We also have proof that he is a good king. We have, we have incredible evidence that he is willing to give his life. That's literally what he did. Give his life in your place for you. He's a sacrificial king. He's a benevolent king. He's a loving king. He's a forgiving king. He's a merciful king. He is what no other king is. He's the king of kings. It's where to obey the king. And that every knee should bow and worship the king. 
Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, our response ought to be to worship him. And so, how do you... This is the big gift of Christmas. That King Jesus has come and he's given himself for you. So how do you... Have you ever gotten a gift? You, you, you get the gift, someone delivers it to you. What's the next step? You've got to open it, right? How do you open the gift of Christmas? How do you open it and, and, and enjoy the gift, right? It's not just that you get a gift... You open it, then what? You gotta, you gotta open it, open the other box, and then enjoy it, right? Anyone ever been given a gift that, you know, to someone and they didn't like it, they returned it, and you felt, you know, that was a jerk move? Well, how many of us have done that to Jesus' gift? Not enjoying him, we're not loving him, we're trying to return him. He's not returnable, and you can't, the value for, his, for, for him is eternal. You must receive the gift. Well, how do you receive the gift? How do you open the, the gift of Christmas? Jesus, King Jesus, is the, is the salvation for his people. Verse 9 of chapter 10 of Romans says this, because if you confess with your mouth, this is how you open the gift, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning he is king, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, meaning he's a victorious king. He's died in your place for your sins. He's risen from the dead victoriously. You will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified. Which means that, that uh, Christ's righteousness has been imputed and given to you. And you've been declared holy and righteous. So with the heart of faith in Jesus, you are declared righteous. This is the same way Abraham in the Old Testament was saved. It was through faith. Through faith that was credited to it or counted to him. Where he was justified and he's made righteous through faith. It is with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This isn't just saying it with your mouth, but this is, this is Jesus speaking, tells us that over the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's saying what is true. In this world, to say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, would be, would be to say Caesar is not King, that there is no King. When we confess that Jesus is Lord, we're saying there is one King. His name is Jesus, and that everyone should bow and worship him. Salvation comes, you open the gift of Christmas, the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life comes through confessing your, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's salvation. Salvation is worshiping the king. It's obeying the king. For the scripture says, verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. How many of you are walking around with shame? Guilt because of sin. Putting your faith in Jesus, he removes the sting of sin. He removes the shame. He was actually put open for shame. Naked, beaten, bruised, mocked, crucified. Shamed for you. So that you will not be. You shall not be put to shame. Though they may mock you in the world, Jesus Christ, the King, is on your side. The King is with you. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, meaning it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your political affiliation, it doesn't matter anything. Jesus is the way to salvation. He is the hope. He is the king. We must obey the king. Anyone can come to Jesus, but all must come to Jesus. For the, for the, same, for the, Lord is the, or for the, the same Lord is Lord of all. There's only one God, one king is Jesus, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You must call on him. You must worship him. You must obey him. You must recognize that you are a sinner in need of a savior and cry out to him. And he will, at that moment, forgive you of your sin eternally, past, present, and future, and give you new life. For those of you who are trusting and believing that for the first time, that's salvation. For those of you who believe that, that's what we go back to. That's the well we go back to again and again and again when accusations come up and tell you that you're worthless, that God doesn't love you, that you've outsinned the mercy and grace of Jesus, you've wrecked your life, you don't have hope. You come back to the truth and saying, All right, My God is Jesus. He is the King. He's dealt with my sin problem. He can help me out in this problem. He can walk with me. His light has shined on, shined on my life, and I've given him my life. I'm going to keep giving him my life. I'm going to keep giving him my, my future. I'm going to keep turning to him. I'm going to continue to. To repent. I'm going to continue to confess my sin, continue to turn to him, continue to treasure him, continue to fight sin, continue to call upon the name of the Lord. Not, you're saved once, but it's like, it's like a child calling out for their father for help. He's always there. He's there to rescue you, help you. Through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, through through confessing that, from recognizing that he is the king and saying, I want to worship that king. Through faith in him and in his finished work on the cross, your sinful heart can be made clean. Your life can be made new. The scripture tells us that we are now made alive in Christ through faith. Dead heart now beating. And so, I'm going to ask the band to come up and we're going to enter into a time of response. It's a little unique, a little different than we normally do. But what this time of response is, well, we're going we're to respond not just, we're going to respond to the text, but what the word has said. We're going to respond with the, the, the response is obey the king. Obey the king. How, how do you need to obey King Jesus? Is there a part of your life that you've, you've hidden from him? Is there, is there a part of your life that you're ashamed of? Have you taken your sin to him? Maybe you have and he's saved you, but you just feel like you're still uh, condemned by the enemy. You're st- you feel like there's accusations continue being washed over you. And you just, you just feel like you're trapped. You feel like you're in darkness and, and you don't have hope. Call out to Jesus. Continue to... To, to unload your burden, your, your sin, your life to Jesus. Give him everything. Some of you, you've, uh, you, you, you weren't a Christian when you walked in. You were you're maybe skeptical. Maybe you've been walking through some hard things. And you're like, no, you know what? I need to make Jesus my king. I need to make him my Lord. I want to do that for the first time today. Some of you, that's how you need to respond. By worshiping Jesus the king for the first time. So what we're going to do right now, do a couple things. We're going to respond, if you're a Christian and you know, love, and trust Jesus, then we have the communion tables open in the back. So here in a moment, I'm going to pray. When I do, the communion table is open for you to go take and, and, and eat and drink. And what that is, is that it's a reminder of, that Jesus gave his body for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. He, his body was broken for you. So you eat the bread and in remembrance of King Jesus. And then you drink the cup in remembrance that his blood was sufficient to, 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 to cover all your sin, your past, present, and future sin. So if you're a Christian and that's you and you know, love, and trust Jesus, your response today is to, it, to repent where you need to, to turn to Jesus where you need to, 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 to remember Jesus where you need to, to call out to Jesus where you need to, and then go to the table and rejoice and feast knowing that he is sufficient, he is enough, that he has saved and he can sustain. 
Second way we're going to respond is there are, there's a group of people who are uh, individuals who are, who are going to be baptized today. And baptism is an external sign, an outward sign of an inward faith. And so this is a public proclamation telling the world that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my King. Jesus is who I worship. So through baptism, this sign is the individual is put under the water, pointing to this reality that Jesus Christ was buried, killed, crucified in our place for our sins. Then they're raised out of the water, pointing to the reality that in faith in Jesus, we've been raised from death to life to walk in the newness of life, bought by the blood of Christ. And so there are individuals who are prepared to be baptized today. But I want to extend the invitation to those who may be putting their faith in Jesus or who have been thinking about baptism, who've been wanting to be baptized, or, or perhaps you've uh, you, you put your faith in Jesus and you've never been baptized. But you're saying, Jesus is my Lord. He is my King. I want to worship Him with my entire life. I'm convicted of my sin. I'm, I'm confessing my sin to Jesus. I want to turn from it. I want to treasure Jesus more than anything. And then I want to live the rest of my life loving, worshiping Jesus and fighting sin by the power, for His power and His help. If that's you, we're going to have a prayer team up here when after I pray that you can come forward. They want to talk with you, they want to, they want to meet you, and they want to ask some questions of you. Maybe today is the day that you respond in obedience as well through baptism. And so what baptism is, is a public profession of this inward change. It's, it's according to the profession of the believer. I, I believe, I, you're saying Jesus is Lord, then according to the command of Christ is, is by which we baptize. So as God is moving, as you're contemplating, as you're thinking what, how to respond, th those are the ways. If you're a Christian, you know, love, and trust Jesus, the table is open to you. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you'd abstain. If you're becoming a Christian or you want to be baptized today, uh, come forward and see our prayer team. And if you've been prepared already for baptism, then you can go ahead and head back after I pray. And then we'll start the party. Let me pray. Jesus, you are a good God and King. We love you. We thank you that we have the privilege of, of calling you King. We also have the privilege that we are adopted children into a heavenly family. That means we have brothers and sisters all over the world that, that our sins have been forgiven. You've given us new life. Help us to, to call out to you continually, to run to you continually. And God, where you're working and moving today among the people, among us today, would we respond in faith and obedience? May we obey the King. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The communion table is open. We ask that you respond as the Lord.